Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. Um, this one, I'm going to say, may be one of the most important ones. Uh, I'm actually, I think, on show 70 now. It's been over a year of, uh, of creating these, these conversations. And today's conversation, as I said, is really, really important. Uh, it was triggered by a random uh, act of introduction from a dear friend of mine, Laura Zimmerman, who said, you need to talk to Jessica and Dror. So I did talk to Jessica and Dror. And out of that conversation, we agreed, you know, it'd be really good to have them on the show. So Jessica and Dror are, uh, Jessica Pashuda and Dror Yaron are the founders of a business titled Ethics MVP. And I'm going to allow them to explain what that means. But I wanted to start with A, welcoming you to the show and B, just tell us your story. Like, tell us, I know you guys were used to work or are working in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. How did you end up doing this? Please explain. Yeah, yeah so we're, we're not working at Carnegie Mellon anymore, but we used to uh, work at the lab that um, was looking at the role of technology in society. So we've been working with a bunch of uh, communities of practice, especially educators on the question of how do you um, practice technology in a values-driven way? Um, so right, schools right now are in this arms race of just getting more and more technology. We were like, we were offering the, the opportunity to pause and um, think where you want to go and then decide if and what technology you're going to use. Um, we've been doing that for about 10 years. Um, and I was building a, a strategic network and I felt like it was working and, and uh, my contribution uh, was not as valuable as somebody that runs it. So I handed it to somebody that actually went to school for that. And um, yeah, at the same time, JP was uh, experiencing a transition. Maybe I'll jump to you. Sure, sure. Uh, it was more of a, an existential questioning of <laughs> what we were doing. I think a lot of the work in the education space, you know, if you're really in education, you're here for the lifelong learning. You believe education is um, a process of inquiry, of understanding what it is to be human and to find your place in the world and understand your identity. And I think we were doing a great job at that, but you know, kids turn 18 and, mm -hmm. or 21, and then they age out of education systems. Um, some go to college or university, some don't. And I, we really wanted to understand, you know, we care about this set of things. We care about continuing to question the value of technology and, and lifelong learning and the constant pursuit of understanding your identity in the world and what you're supposed to do here. 
but we didn't have a we didn't have a program, we didn't have a project, we didn't have answers. Um, so Dora and I began our own inquiry because that's what we believe in, of asking that question out there in the world amongst our friends and partners. We landed, you know, one of the things that I've always believed, especially from graduate school, was that um, voice is a, such a powerful way of solidifying your identity and communicating who you are and making meaning and sense in the world. And I always felt that, you know, entrepreneurship is such a strong sense of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a, it is the way that you are making your mark on the world. You're literally building a company and a thing, uh, service or product, putting it out there with the extreme vulnerability that it takes to do so. Um, And I just think it's beautiful. And I I love working with entrepreneurs. So we were lucky enough to ask the question, this question, the set of questions uh, of the right person in the city of Pittsburgh, where we are based. And they happened to run uh, or be affiliated with a hardware accelerator and said, you know what? We kind of care about these things too. And you guys are really good at infusing these questions in a way that you're building technology. Gosh, we wish, you know, our companies were thinking of these questions. Hmm. We want, we're worried, you know, we're thinking about ethics and the technology that's coming out of all places. And I think you guys can have conversations in a creative and thoughtful way that can, can help our companies wrestle with those. Um, So then this project was born. That's the beginning of the story. So let me let me just go back a little in time when you first started exploring this this question or topic of values driven technology or what I would call human human benefit driven technology, um, not in the commercial sense. What was the reception within the education world? Because that was the world you guys were operating in. Was it makes sense? It's kind of sort of what we've been doing, or what are you talking about? Like what was the what was the Re- reaction. Funny you should ask. Uh, it seems like every, I'm not going to name names, but everybody in education doesn't like the way it's going on right now. Um, I mean, talk about standardized testing. Okay, kids, parents don't like it. Teachers don't like. Administ. Nobody w- wants to do that, but the system is running and running on, in in ways that are not necessarily facilitating the humanity of of education, um, and. For me, uh, in a subversive way, uh, I was uh, very much into democratic education, but was bothered by the the idea that only uh, some privileged people can afford it. And I was trying to bring it to a wider audience. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like when you put a computer or a robot in the classroom, it's fine to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And... um, so that's how I got into that with, with, with the, the agenda of, of humanizing education. And, and it's, it's like, yeah, once you bring technology, it, it is okay to reconsider and listen to, to your students and let them lead to their learning. And, and I, I think that the system is more ready for it than, um, or the people are more ready for the change and the system is ready for it. Oh, well said, well said. And, and at a systems level, I'm thinking about um, one of the most popular courses at uh, I think it's Stanford or maybe it's Harvard is uh, their computer science course. It's like CS 50 something or other. Does your work fit within, with in the curriculum of higher education, does your work fit within the, within the computer science realm or does it fit in the philosophy realm or the management realm or the, <laughs> Like where, you know, where, where, where do they park this topic, I guess, is, is maybe a question. Yeah, I, I'm going to give you the unsatisfactory answer from my end. Um, no, 
Um, <laughs> I, I mean, our, we're working with some philosophy tools. We're not philosophers, right? But I think where you know this is relevant and where we want to park it is anywhere we're doing, we're innovating, right? We're making new stuff and putting it out into the world. Yeah, you're right. There are some some universities that are doing a great job talking ethics and values when you're when you're talking about computer science, engineering, and robotics. We're not giving students enough time to talk about what it means to be human in that and what the relationship between humanity and technology. Again, there's a caveat. There are some really great programs that are doing it, but we want to. I really like working with your working professional who's making a thing and putting it out there. Right. And maybe needs a little bit of time and encouragement to, to stop and say, and stop and question what it is that they're making. Stop and think about the unintended consequences that we don't right. always get to pause and do because our, our innovation cycles, our startup cycles, our R&D cycles are really, I mean, our engineers have a lot of pressure on them too. And startup founders, especially. Do Dora, what would you say to that? I would say that at Carnegie Mellon, we were in the Robotics Institute that was in the School of Computer Science, uh, but we were in a lab that was very different. Uh, so JP already mentioned we're not philosophers, we're also not technologists. Uh, so that lab had uh, a pretty significant group of people that their job was to build relationships with the community and being be in community with, with partners. Um, which is very different than the usual story where you invent something, you find a classroom to test it on, you write your paper and they don't see you ever again. Um, our approach was we are partners first. And then there's a lot of activities we do that we can benefit and help each other thinking mm -hmm. about what to invent, how to invent or inform it. We can write the paper together. Um, but there was a significant amount of, what would say six to eight people in different capacities that are, that was their work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you, when did you start Ethics MVP officially? What year was that? Um, it started as a project at that lab, the Create Lab at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, grant funded for uh, a couple of years. So that was, uh, we started in 2019, we were invited into that accelerator here in Pittsburgh, okay. Alpha, Alpha Lab Gear. And um, we did a program in person. We had great response from the entrepreneurs that participated there. Mm -hmm. And then 2020, uh, we had to restructure the whole thing because 2020. 2020. Right. Right. Um, and we, but that gave us an opportunity to really re understand the, the essence of what you were doing because you couldn't just take something you did in person and put it on Zoom, that would be painful. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to kind of zoom out and try to understand, okay, where are we trying to go? Now let's do it with those tools. Okay. Um, so um, th that was actually not that I think it should have happened or we wanted it to happen, but it did, mm -hmm. it did help us grow a lot. Um, As you moved into the, um, the entrepreneurship space, I'm just curious to know what the receptivity was. And I'm really reminded of a couple of several conversations I had when I ran the Harvard Innovation Lab. A big part of my agenda while there was trying to elevate the human factor, what I call the human factor, both human factor as, as audience, as customer, as marketplace, and also human factor as employee, as team member. And, and trying to get the entrepreneurs, which were mostly Harvard students, there were some alumni teams, 
to dimensionalize their understanding of the audience and with that the responsibility they had to engage that audience through this multifaceted lens including things like ethics and some of the reaction i got early on was what are what are ethics And I'm convinced, by the way, if any of us went out on the street right now in downtown Pittsburgh, downtown Boston, downtown wherever, and asked somebody to define ethics, I think a large percentage, at least of Americans, would look at us <laughs> with, with two heads like, what? So, I mean, just just what was the what was the initial I'm sure there was a diversity of reactions from absolutely to what are you talking about? But just tell us, tell us a little bit about how you, as you got into the sort of more commercialization of this, uh, what, 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 what was the reaction? What was the market reaction? Well, let's actually start as a university project. Um, from the accelerator leader level, uh, the people that talk to us uh, <laughs> were buying it. Um, what, uh, we heard that they don't want the companies they invested in to end up on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, we heard that um, companies are uh, founders are being stumped at demo days because the audience has questions that have to do with ethics and society, and they don't even have the vocabulary to start answering right. that. Um, and just general, uh, generally, it's, it's good leadership uh, to mm -hmm. be able to, to have that way of thinking. Um, the accelerator manager at the place we came to suggested that we, we had to report to our found, foundation that uh, paid for this. And uh, he suggested that we just write a sentence every time we talk to those entrepreneurs because they're so busy, that's all we're going to get. But turns out that once we made the space, uh, they embraced it. And mm. they, they ended up asking for regular office hours just with the ethics MVP team. And they ended up producing work that we didn't ask we did ask to do some work but they went above and beyond um wow and that and and i mean that that, that fit my understanding of you want to put something new into the world what makes more sense than let's think about what am i going to put into the world what world am i putting it into um i mean at the very basic level you're going to spend probably the next 5 10 15 years doing this are you mm -hmm. going to enjoy showing up to this place um so we we found great reception from entrepreneurs once we commercialized though and we were like okay this is working people want us we know why they want us uh turned out that accelerators do not have the budgets to uh or at least the structurally, it's set up in a way that a lot of the expertise they provide to companies is by volunteers. Mm -hmm. And that meant that we cannot run a company on contracting with accelerators, or at least mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. at that moment. Um, and that, that by, without taking myself, not making money out of the picture, uh, I think it, it is problematic because the ones that can show up and for free and share the expertise is a very narrow set of entrepreneurs and they share a very specific uh, narrative of how to start a business and succeed. 
Um, so I do think that, and not necessarily for JPNI, but in general, uh, starting to pay people would allow for more narratives and more paths to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's leave that behind. We found that um, the people that come to us and are interested in what we're doing are convening uh, different groups. So um, the person that connected uh, you to us is mm-hmm. from the Global Accelerator Network, and we've been in conversation with them for a long time, and they have a group of a lot of members. I think it also it takes mass and, and budgets, but it also takes this kind of outside look. I know this is important, this care, this caregiving role that I need to take care of those companies in my portfolio. I need to take care of those nonprofits that I'm, I'm funding. Um, those are the people that have usually the, or so far had the bandwidth and mm-hmm. the vision that no, we need to equip those people with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the entrepreneurs at, at, the, at Alpha Lab here would not necessarily go and ask for ethics if he didn't show up there. Right, right. When you, when you work with an entity, whether it's a startup or the accelerator itself or a, a corporation, I mean, I, I think this topic is, applies to any, any entity, company, country, planet, <laughs> Um, how much of the emphasis is on the way they lead the way versus the way they manage versus the way they develop the product or service versus the way they take it to market. That's like, it's almost like it's a, it's a matrix. And then underneath that is immediate cost benefit of the thing to society and the ethical considerations within there. And then, JP, you mentioned unintended consequences, which tend to be longer term costs, sometimes benefits. Like how much, how do you sort of distribute? I don't even know if that question makes sense, but does it make sense? Anybody? Yes and no. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to tackle it. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, first of all, slow down. We're just two people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, we do want to slow up, you know, I mean, I think uh, on that note, you know, there, we found a couple of other folks in this world um, who we could consider competitors, but um, Dora puts it nicely and says that there's, there's enough work for all of us. Yeah. Um, Unlimited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, uh, you know, before we answer the rest of your question, I do want to add that our, no, no one's evil out here, right? We're not no one's out yes. here saying I'm going to make this thing to steal all the day. It's not, that's not happening. Right. Um, I think Jor had talked about the systems that kind of create um, some inequity in voices and who gets to participate. And I think that same system around um, innovation can also uh, not give our, our innovators our, our entrepreneurs, our founders, um, our CEOs, the time to, uh, take off our blinders and look around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not exclusive, of course, but um, so answering your question, can we do that? Well, <laughs> let me let me make it simpler. Like the the way of an organization has ethical considerations, and what it produces, mm-hmm. product or service, has ethical considerations, and how much. Just simplifying it down to those two two views. Is your work both? You know, if, 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 uh, okay, that's really my question. Yeah. Okay. Got that question. Um, 
I'd love to tell a story, but yeah, it is. We, I would say we focus on culture first. We focus on your leader first uh, because they're the one driving the messaging. Right. Um, right. And that leader can be, that can be your CEO, that can be your department manager. It can be whatever context we're talking about. Um, and I, and we believe that your, your leader, your values, the values that your team starts to build as they, as they uh, come together um, need to be something that are examined, right? That's part of our process. And you need to understand them as you're building whatever it is that you're building. Mm-hmm. So we, that's why everything we do is values led. We start with values there. Um, your ethics become your values in action. And hopefully that answers your question of yes, mm-hmm. yes, and. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was talking to a startup leader earlier today and they were, you know, they're building a technology. They've got a, they're ready to, they're prototyping it. Um, they're ready to start testing it with customers. And um, they're coming to us because the number one thing that they care about is um, having diversity and gender balance in their workforce um, and creating uh, the anti-engineering company, right? They've been in so many situations where they're, they don't get to show up like full humans at, mm. at work. Um, Drawer says a lot, you know, bring your ethics to work, bring your human to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's really why a lot of folks are coming to us because they're forgetting or they're coming from places where that isn't happening. And so I appreciate that conversation where they're saying, I want to work on my culture here. I want to make sure that we have an ethical team. And then I think all of that will filter into the product that we build. Okay. So give me a, give me us a little, I should have maybe started with this question. Ethics versus values. Are they, is a sub ethics, a subset? Are they in your mind synonyms? Like how, how, what's the relationship between those two creatures? We like to say that um, ethics is this I believe and values are this we practice. So values so, are action. Actions and beliefs mm-hmm. and I and we. So it's also a, a social contract um, okay. of how remember, we are Chris, going to behave. Yeah. Remember, we're, uh, you know, we're looking at the minimum viable ethics that you can get when you start building a thing, right? Right. So we're trying to keep it simple, practical, and digestible. Which you know, which is the MVP thing, right? That's that's the classic entrepreneurship. For those that don't know what MVP is in, in entrepreneurship startup land, is minimum viable product, which is to say you go to market with something that the market can embrace more readily and over time iterate to make it optimal effectively. So that's it's also most valuable person. <laughs> I could argue, I could argue that applies too, you know? Um, so, so, so let's, I'm now, I'm now a startup founder with an entity and I come upon you guys and I, I am, I want, I want to, I want to ensure that my, my, my business is ethical, my, my, my environment, my product, my everything how do you engage? And, and, and by the way, is, is all your work in the, in the entrepreneurship space or does it, is it any company? Like how, how do you sort of put boundaries around? We, we, um, we come to 
define ourselves as uh, innovation ethics coaches. Mm. So uh, we're, I love putting that. something you're putting something new into the world. We will be here to help you. Um, not only make sure that you don't do the wrong thing, but also that you you got people with you and people behind you. Um, we know right now people are having a hard time finding employees. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can speak clearly to your values and what are you doing about those, mm-hmm. you will have less trouble getting employees and retaining the ones you have. Um, same for customers. I mean, if you go to the, the uh, supermarket, I like to talk about like you can... All the packages are a big storybook of the world becoming better, but consumers are becoming smarter also. And, and the words are not enough anymore. Um, right. So you, you need to really develop the muscles. And, and that's, that's where we are. We are at. So any, basically any, I mean, virtually every organization that is awake in today's world understands the importance of innovating and even transforming how they do what they do. They're all potential clients. Is that fair to say? Uh, and, and, and so, so from a methodology standpoint, you know, you pique my curiosity, how do you, like, I, I don't need the whole thing, but just what can I expect as a client? Like, what is there, you know, some critical steps you always take, or is it more bespoke and depends on the state of the business, the state of whatever? Yeah. Um, so definitely no two situations that are alike and we always, um, start by listening. Um, but in general, and probably that's not a smart thing for a business leader to say, but uh, we're not going to make your life easier, actually. We're going to make your life harder. <laughs> well, you sound like uh, me. <laughs> but uh, we're going we're gonna to get you to appreciate that hardship. And uh, basically, we're the gym, okay? So like, so you, can, you can eat all the junk food you want and, and wait until you're sick and go to the doctor and pay for a very expensive surgery and you may not come out of it the same way you got into it. Um, or you can watch what you're eating and you can go to the gym and um, it's easier usually to wait for the doctor and to pay the big money. Right. Uh, but but we're offering, if you know how to do that, you may get to the doctor way later or you may avoid it all together um, because what you do with us is work. I mentioned the word muscles and we use it a lot. You work on those muscles. Uh, it is ethics MPP. You will not achieve your ethics at the end of the process with us, but you would have gone through a process and learned that you can do it, that you have that uh, equipment, you have the skills on board mm-hmm. and um, you'll also identify how it works for you and put it in practice and, and plan for how it's going to happen in your company moving forward. So we try to help you change to help you adopt a lifestyle um, or business style that it's just normal to talk about ethics. That's something we do at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And does it involve all the employees? I mean, I imagine at some point you have to, you have to get it to every level of the organization, right? Big or small. By now we've, been, we've done both, I think. Uh, I mean, definitely we, we start with the leaders um we are now working with a co-op so it's not employees but it's it's the whole group yeah uh, is in, involved in that process um also i i, I mean my, my passion is also doing work with, with ecosystems mm-hmm. so not in even like the company and the employees but the company and their investors and maybe other stakeholders and 
And I used to say, okay, we'll do that. And then one day that the dream will happen, but it seems like the dream is coming to us. Uh, so more of the people that come to us, there's less companies that come and say, let's do this and more ecosystems that come and ask to work with us. That's so interesting. Um, like I mentioned earlier on, like, yeah. Well, it's, and it's so reflective, but I think it's a reflective of the, the shift from, from discrete to integrated, you know, from hierarchical structures to amorphous networks. And I think more and more, and people are realizing everything's connected to everything. My actions are, are not, not, not being sort of implemented in a vacuum. And we've got to look at this in an ecosystem kind of way that if we don't bring the partners in the, you know, the different members of the value chain or whatever, our ability to actually get anything done efficiently or effectively is probably uh, severely uh, diminished, right? Uh, that makes sense. Um, I want to uh, touch on something JP said earlier, a term that I use a lot in the book that I'm writing, uh, Technology is Dead. And this the term unintended consequences. And I actually was just reading this article. I'm showing these guys it's from the Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's titled Digital Addictions Are Drowning Us in Dopamine, written by Professor Anna Lemke, who is a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford. Uh, and I literally just read it like 20 minutes ago. A friend of mine uh, handed it to me over the weekend. And a lot of what she calls out, basically the gist of the article, which is also the gist of the book she has written called uh, Dopamine Nation, is really this issue of our addiction to screen time. You know, whether it's iPhones, whether it's social media, video games, whatever, and the rush that we get from that addiction always that the pleasure comes with pain and that the it, it's it's actually at a, at a at a physiological level uh causing uh uh not just addictions but out of that um a bunch of mental health issues including anxiety and depression and as i read the article i mean it's spot on it's very consistent with what i've been writing about um you know, the unintended consequences of these now ubiquitous technologies and applications. And the thing I ponder is how could we have gotten ahead of that as a society, not, not, not as Facebook, the corporation, but as a society, you know, and, and we were seeing this in robotics, like you, the work you guys were doing probably at Carnegie Mellon. Can you get ahead and I, I, I think you got to try, even if the answer is no, you can't get ahead. I think we still have to all try harder, but can you get yeah. ahead? Okay. Yes. So talk to me about that. So if, if, if you know, to talk about screen time, the, the children of all those people that invented that are getting very little of it. Getting very what? Very little screen time. I mean, if you're work, if you're um, a child of a leader in Apple or any of those, right. Yeah, right. they, they, they limit your diet of screens very harshly, actually, because they know. Um, and I'm not coming to say that they are doing it to us because they want to destroy us. But I think that what they're doing is, okay, that's my personal life. And here is my business. This is business. This is not human. Right. 
But if they brought the same human that is interacting with their child to their job, it would it wouldn't be that hard to notice that well we are harming our customers and um, if you assume humanity in business you also assume more responsibility in that way and you may try to um, design it not just as a response to market forces but because you're human right, uh, right. but we we are we are definitely a program to okay once you get into work please check check your personality and, and your beliefs at the door and now this is just business. There's nothing personal in there, but it's it's business is human activity, um, and and if we don't bring the human into that, then we will have those consequences. Mm-hmm. Something JP says also is um, uh, you gotta let go of uh, perfection, the idea of perfection. So there will be unintended consequences, and there will be mistakes that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it then? And also in what capacity and mindset are you approaching that? So are you, are you going to look at those as a human and solve them as a human? Or are you going to look at your, only at your um, balance sheet or whatever you do in business? Right, right, right. <laughs> and well, your, your values and your ethics help you decide how you're going to respond to them. So if you don't understand what they are, if you don't understand why you're there, then you're gonna, you're gonna screw up a lot more and you're gonna, you're gonna see you will have more chances to see harm done with whatever it is that you're making. Right. And you're also, I think I'm not implying the right word, but inferring that the work that you do with corporations, startups, of big companies on, on ethics and value determination necessarily has to be reflective of who they are as people. Like, (laughs) <laughs> there is it's not a set of values of the corporation because the corporation doesn't it's just a collection of people so if it's not genuine right if it's not authentic it's going to fall apart pretty I'm, I'm, i don't want to put words in your mouth but that's what i'm hearing it's a little doom and gloomy but yeah yeah you're as an organization you function um with these living breathing idiosyncratic imperfect parts Right. Trying to be per- trying to be this perfect machine. Um, if you can leverage it, you do even better. But our, you know, at the end of the day, we always we strongly believe that your founder, your leader, um, they're really driving the direction of an organization, no matter what. You, you even if you, you can't help it. That's that's the science. That's the research. We understand that that that's how it goes. To qualify. Um... Big companies and corporations. Uh, when we started that, GP and I said, Let, "Let's go fix Facebook." Then we looked at each other and we were like, "Nah, let's not." <laughs> so we we are uh, actually uh, we're pretty intentional about the scale we work with. I uh, would say midsize will be the, the largest, um, and I also not to be um, what do you call it. I don't know. I just, I feel like our work will be way more effective if we help create alternatives than if we try to fix what's already big and moving with inertia. Um, and then if mm-hmm. we create a good alternative, one day those people on the big ships will look around and be like, where did everybody go? Right, right. I'm mindful of the time. I, I you know, as I said to you both earlier, one of my aspirations is to have 
every interview show we do and with a couple of to do's or a couple of ideas that the audience can think about or to apply to their life, to apply to their work. In the case of leaders, which I know I have a bunch of CEOs that listen to the show, any tidbits of besides calling you and hiring you, are there any, are there any other things that the average human could, should be doing in this very important area of, of, of hum, humankind? Anything. We've got, yeah, we've got a bunch. <laughs> Where do you want to start, Dror? I will start with boring. <laughs> what can you do today? Figure out something small you can do today um, that will make you, your business more aligned with who you are. Um, and when we talk to companies about their ethics and their values in action, we say that can show up in big ways and in boring ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the boring ways are the ones that I think tend to um, be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And going back to what JP said, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, we are going to exploit everybody's data and lie to them. Um, are I you think sure? I think... <laughs> I, actually, we should maybe start walking that back drawer. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. Actually, I'm reading the book. By right the way, have you, yeah. have you read about the whole... I lo- well, keep going, keep going. I don't want to throw you. Yeah, 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 keep yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of ethical collapses are actually one small boring decision on top of another small boring decision on top of another. Um, that really, it's, it's like those details. Um, so the good news is those boring details are also easy to get started with. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like to get a little ethicsy, Anya. Um, a lot of uh, the writing lately, especially around ethics in business and humanity, pulls a couple of Dion, you know, a couple of our, our favorite philosophers and tries to distill them down to things that are at least applicable to society in like North America, right? It's definitely culture specific. I want that to be very clear. A, you know, a professor at Carnegie Mellon named John Hooker has written about just kind of three questions you got to ask. And they definitely are a rabbit hole, but here they are. One is, is this decision generalizable? If everybody does it, is it still okay? Hmm. Two, um, does it maximize utility? And these are, you know, these kind buried underneath these are values that are just kind of central to, to our culture and society. And the last one is, does this violate anyone's autonomy? Huh. And so those are really like the three big that we're pulling from when, we, when we're working with companies, organizations, individuals who are trying to think about this whole connection of values and ethics and then the, how do I get concrete about decision-making? Um, and if you're, you're looking for a framework, I think that's a really good, easy one to put on your whiteboard. Um, so that's my, that's my input. Put these questions on your whiteboard. I love that. I love both answers, the boring and the framework. Um, the framework triggers for me a, a, a dear friend of mine that we're talking this weekend about friends. And one of the impacts for, for me around coming out of COVID is just the realization of the importance of more actively curating who I'm with, you know, professionally, personally. Um, and he threw out a, a framework uh, of integrity in terms of gauging friends, integrity, uh, emotional maturity, and vulnerability. Now you can argue, anybody can argue those three things. But my point is the framework is really helpful. 
it's really helpful. Like so many of our decisions, both personally and professionally, don't actually have frameworks underpinning them, don't have a set of criteria, don't have a filter. And I think a lot of us just sort of stumble along, bump around, doing what we've always done, maybe in a slightly different way, but fundamentally it's the same thing. And, and we end up producing these outcomes that maybe are not optimal, optimal for now, optimal for the future, optimal for humankind. So I, I, I love that. I love that framework uh, and the boring, because I think the other thing about boring, which when Dro, when you were telling, saying that, I thought to myself, you know, humans are so seduced by the sexy, <laughs> like, woo, woo. but it's the boring that usually gets the job done. <laughs> And so, so, you know, both of those are great, great answers. So and Chris, I, I'll, I, I love to add, um, ethics is kind of a sexy word right now too. And I think one of the other things that Roar and I really watch out for is the ethics washing. And mm. Um, mm. we're, <laughs> I'm not going to, we're not going to name names here, but like we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that potential happening. Um, and I think the critical interrogations of whether those are authentic or not, um, is really important. And then also, you know, for folks working internally in those organizations, I think often it isn't authentic, right? But there's still so much work to be done to really put it in practice, make it yeah. practical and make it something that's holistic across culture. And so for those folks, I encourage you to keep driving those conversations, make it normal to talk about ethics make it fun. We do it all the time. Bring, you know, it's, right. it's something that doesn't have to be scary. Um, ethics is a human act, just like business is a human act. We all do it. So right. it doesn't, you don't need to have um, a strong reference and a PhD in it, in it. Do call a philosopher if you, if you really need one. And right. I think that um, you do, you do in a lot of places, but um, it's everybody's responsibility in an organization to ask questions and to, and to really make it a habit to just have have questions about ethics. Yeah, and and I think that's very consistent with what you both were saying earlier about building a muscle. You know, this again, humans so want it to be done today. Why can't I just flick a switch and be ethical, or why can't I just flick a switch and have a high performing culture and and, and all this stuff? I think the human stuff is the most complicated aspect of business and obviously of life and being patient with ourselves and just committing to trying. And if you need help calling ethics MVP. <laughs> so to that end, how can people get in touch with you? We have a website, ethicsmvp.com. We are, uh, we have a page on LinkedIn. We are on Twitter. It's at, at ethicsmvp, both. Okay. And you must be working on a book. I hope you're working on a book because the world needs more more of this by both of you. Well, actually, we we not just us. There's a few more people involved in that. But yes, there, there is something coming. Well, we look forward to that. Well, thank you both for being on the show. And um, it's just such, as I said to you the first time we talked, I just so profoundly believe this is the most important work we can be doing as a as a as a species is better understanding ourselves, better guiding ourselves, and particularly guiding ourselves through this, uh, this thing called technology. So thank you. And uh, if I can be of support to you in the future, I am here. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, same. This was so much fun to talk to you, Chris. Likewise.
Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.